You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. Great to be, uh, great to be together today uh, to worship with you and uh, to join together. Uh, if we've not met, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to thank you for coming, especially if you're new. We're, we're, we're glad that everybody's here, but we're especially glad if you're a new person and you chose to worship with us today, so we hope you'll feel welcomed because we are certainly uh, thrilled to have you with us. Uh, we are working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, so we're in a, in a series on Ecclesiastes Uh, And today we're going to be looking at the idea that uh, two are better than one. Um, I read an article this last week that was about personal space. Uh, You know what personal space is. It's like how comfortable are you in talking with someone? Like how near do you want them to be? And like how close to them are you going to move when speaking with another person? The article was absolutely fascinating because it said that there are difference, there's a difference in gender. So women, uh, studies show, stand closer together when they talk than do men, or than do men and women. A man and a woman talking together would be farther apart than two women by nature. Uh, young people stand closer than older people do uh, to talk with personal space. But the big takeaway was that personal space is generally speaking dictated by your culture, that it's a cultural issue, and that there are really two types of cultures. There are individualistic cultures, and there are collectivist cultures. And when it says that, it's not talking about politics, so it doesn't mean someone who lives in a democracy versus someone who lives uh, under socialism. It's not talking about that at all. It's a psychological term, or a sociological term, or maybe better, an anthropological term. Uh, that means how do you relate to a group? And in individualistic societies, the individual is prioritized over the group, and people tend to think of themselves as autonomous and separate from a group. In a collectivist uh, culture, uh, people tend to think of themselves as identified with a group. Their family, their first point of identification might be their family or uh, some other group. So it is how do I think about myself is individualistic versus uh, collectivist in culture. And no surprise, but collectivist cultures, people in collectivist cultures stand closer together, and people in individualistic cultures stand farther apart, which is to say, I am my own, I'm independent, I'm autonomous, get out of my space. Uh, It may not surprise you, but the most individualistic country in the world uh, is the U.S., and uh, the U.S. and the U.K., Uh, in the study they did, stand farthest apart when speaking together. Latin Americans stand closest together when speaking, along with other Middle Easterns, uh, people from the Middle East uh, as well. Uh, Like 25% closer. So the average American stands 80 centimeters from a person talking to them, whereas the average Latin American stands 60 centimeters. So after the service today, you go hug somebody from Latin America because they will welcome it and just stand at a distance and like wave to an Irishman. I don't know, but uh, so there tends to be a difference in how 
how close people tend to be. And as I read that, I thought, well, the whole point of the article was about what kind of culture do you live in, because what kind of culture you live in colors the way you see the world. It colors the way you see yourself relating to the world and to groups. And for this reason, those of us who are, grew up in the U.S., we live in a culture that is so individualistic that it is a disadvantage when we come to reading the Bible. Uh, there's advantages to individualistic cultures and disadvantages. There's advantages and disadvantages to collectivist cultures as well. But the Bible is written in a collectivist culture. The Hebrew people thought of themselves as one. If you, if you sin, it's not only against God, but you bring uh, dishonor to the people. That's why he says, purge the, the Bible says, purge the evil from un, among you. And, and there are times when it's talking about, hey, the reputation of God through his people is at stake. So there's a, an allegiance to the group in the Bible, in the Hebrew mind. And so that's when we read the Bible uh, that oftentimes we see that and it's hard for us to imagine what they're talking about. Today, we're going to read a passage that challenges our individualistic instincts. And it, it challenges it in a passage written in a collectivist culture. So this is written to people in a collectivist culture. And if it's challenging them, how much more does the idea of independence, autonomy, isolation, how much more does it challenge us as we read the text today? So we're going to read uh, Ecclesiastes 4 verses 4 through 16. So listen to God's word this morning. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken." Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, uh, though his own kingdom, through his own kingdom, I'm sorry, though his, in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. God created us to flourish in community. So we must resist the temptation to go it alone. That's what this passage is about, we're going to see. Rugged individualism is a chasing after the wind, it is vanity, or in Solomon's words, two are better than one. The passage is about elevating we, 
not me. And this section really challenges our tendency to be obsessed with ourselves. But instead, God in the passage, in the heart of the passage, calls us to appreciate, and not only appreciate, but to cultivate companionship, relationship, uh, growing with others, living with others. So I think there's three sections here. The first one is about working for me. The second one is about working together. And the third one about the king is about leading for me. And we'll look at each of these in turn. Verses 4 to 8 are about working for me. Here the preacher sort of exposes the emptiness of working with the goal of me, with me being the goal of my work. Making my toil about me is vanity, and it's a striving after wind. Remember the word vanity means breath. It, it means something that is fleeting, something that is elusive, that can't be grasped. And so he's saying, look, working for yourself, that's an elusive. Working by yourself, for yourself, with you as the goal, that's an empty way of life. And in, in verse 4, it's clearly all about me. It's I saw someone who did toil, who with all his toil and all his skill, um, in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. So it's an observation that people work hard and people get skilled up. They grow in their skills because they are envious of their neighbor. So rather than being motivated for the good of my neighbor, rather than being motivated to work for the good of my neighbor to help others flourish, uh, instead this is work that is motivated by envy of neighbor. It is working with a motivation because I want what my neighbor has. He observes people who work hard and grow in their skills because they want to keep up with their neighbor. They want to surpass even their neighbor. I mean, it is easy to look at someone else's gifts or look at someone else's opportunities Look at their job, look at their family, look at their financial success. And rather than rejoicing with them in their success, to envy them. See, we often look at someone else, their job, their opportunities, their life, their family, their success. And when we look at them, we make it about me. I look at them in their success and I make it about me. And then we end up feeling inferior to our sibling, to our friend, to our coworker, to our neighbor, e even to our fellow church member. This is working from a position of envy. Sometimes the envy can just be more general in nature. Um, I think looking around at the standard of living around us and then seeking to live and achieve that standard, what we used to call that keeping up with the Joneses. That's working from a position of envy. It's, it's not that I'm thinking about being a blessing to others or glorifying the Lord. I'm thinking about keeping up with others or surpassing others or measuring myself against others. What have I accomplished? If you're older, what did I accomplish? If you're in midlife, am I accomplishing what I'm supposed to be accomplishing at this stage of my life? If you're young, what are my future opportunities and how do they measure up to other people? This is working from envy of neighbor rather than love of neighbor. Now, Ecclesiastes is not denying that this doesn't work. This works. I found most 
people that I've read about, successful people, could be athletes, could be CEOs, most of the most successful people that I've read interviews from often have a terrible relationship with their dad, and they're just trying to win approval. They're trying to exceed to get the approval of someone in their life. Or they had a coach that said, you'll never amount to anything. And so they lived their whole, whole life playing the sport, working hard, first in the gym, first, last out of the gym, to prove that coach wrong. It's motivation from, a, from this kind of position of, of, of sort of uh, envy or uh, any number of things that are seeking to, uh, seeking to compel us to work without the proper motive for our work. And, and Ecclesiastes says it's all vanity and a striving after win. Listen, how much better to view your life of work as an opportunity to be a blessing to others? What if instead of trying to measure up to somebody else or surpass them, what if my goal in work was to be wind in their sails, to be a blessing to them? This is the gospel. This is how the gospel works in our lives. It makes us, Jesus said he was servant of all, that he came to be a servant of all, and, and, and so are we. Other motivation, uh, any other motivation will not deliver what, what we hope for. On the other hand, an other's orientation, an other's motivation instead of envy, delivers a joy that you will never find in trying to toil to keep up with a family member, to keep up with a friend, to keep up with your neighbor, to keep up with your coworker. Let me ask you, how, where do you find yourself in verse 4? More specifically, to whom do you compare yourself? To whom do you compare yourself? This could be all kinds of things. Here he's kind of talking about work, but it could be your family. It could be your, where you live, what you drive, what kind of vacations you take, your children, your spouse, your parents. It could be, it, we can compare all day long because that's what's in our heart so often. With whom are you trying to match up? Whose approval are you trying to reach? Or who are you, to, with whom, to whom are you trying to uh, match their level of success? Let me ask you this. Whose accomplishment do you find it a little bit difficult to celebrate? Whose accomplishment? Oh, another success. Uh, another advancement. Uh, another purchase, another achievement. Whose gifts or opportunities do you find it a little difficult or maybe a lot difficult to celebrate? Oh, you smile on the outside. Oh, congratulations. But inside you're thinking, why not me? That's work from envy. And, and what he says here is I saw all the toil and all the skill and realize this is how most people live their lives, and this is what they're accomplishing for. And he says, this is a striving after wind. This is like trying to capture substance by grabbing the wind. There's no substance. There's no substance to it. And, and, and the reality is, when you get what you want, when you surpass that person, it's empty. Because it has not been from the motive that God created you for, which is to love your neighbor, not envy your neighbor, to bless your neighbor, not to compare yourself with your neighbor. You know what repentance looks like when we have this going on in our hearts? It means encouraging that person. 
It means turning to Jesus, confessing our sin, and asking for grace to go and encourage that person, to celebrate God's gifts to that person and where they are and what God's doing in their lives, to pray for them, not for their failure. You may have prayed that prayer. Not for their failure, (laughs) but that God would work in their lives. Here's what Solomon is saying. Toiling for me, which is what this is, Toiling for me is empty. Toiling for the good of others produces satisfaction. There is a joy in toiling for the good of others that provides a satisfaction because the kingdom is upside down. It doesn't work. We are are not working like the world. We're working off an entirely different system of values. And thus we celebrate the person that we're tempted to be envious of. In the next verse, Solomon observes an equally selfish person But this person, his lifestyle, her lifestyle is the complete opposite. Look at verse uh, 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So this person isn't motivated to work hard and toil out of envy. This person isn't improving their skills for advancement. This person has just folded their hands. Uh, the folded hands is the sign of doing nothing. This, this sound may sound familiar to you. This is the sluggard from the book of Proverbs. The sluggard from Proverbs, who's the one being described here. He isn't thinking of others. He's checked out. She's just taking it easy and doing nothing. And this person ends up cannibalizing themselves. Now, it doesn't mean that they just fold their hands and start gnawing on their arm or something like this. That's not what's in mind. But it means, what he means is the selfishness just eats away his own life. The person that just doesn't want to do anything, they, they, they eat up their own life. So what is the answer? To unfold your hands and get busy? Well, he says that's a problem too. Verse 6 Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Both laziness and busyness can be equally selfish. He describes busyness here as two hands full of toil. It's a picture of someone carrying all they can carry, doing all they can do. This is a productivity guru just every moment accounted for, producing, working, making it happen. This is the person whose whole life doesn't have time for anything else. Just two hands full of toil and work. It's maximum activity. And yet he calls this kind of life a striving after wind. Again, you're trying to catch the wind. You're doing something impossible. If you think the meaning of life and satisfaction is tied to how much you can do so that your hands are full to overflowing with activity. It's striving after wind. There's a more balanced way to live, and he calls this not two handfuls, but one handful. This is a handful of quietness. This is a life of hard work, to be sure. The Bible calls us to hard work. The Bible calls us to achievement. It just is in very different terms. It's stewardship. It's using the gifts God has given for his glory. That's very different than everything we're reading about here. But the one handful of quietness is what he says. This is a life of hard work in the one hand and a life of margin 
and the other. It's not working until you over, overflow the margins. It's working with margin. So that one hand can be quietness. One hand could be at rest. One hand may be involved in toil, but one hand is at rest. Now, quietness does not mean silence. He's not saying here that two hands full of toil, he's not um, comparing that to silence. The word quietness in the NIV, for instance, is translated tranquility. So that probably gets at what's going on here, tranquility. It means to have peace of mind. Is it better to live a life filled with two hands full of toil and activity? Um, Work, 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 work. He says, no, it's better to have peace of mind. And that means having a handful of quietness to measure your life, to, to live within the boundaries of your creatureliness, to sleep, to have rest, to take a break, to use that hand, that free hand that's not in toil, to give or to serve perhaps another person. That's what he is talking about. David Gibson in the book we have out in the uh, resource center there says, it's a word to capture this word quietness. It's a word to capture the deep well-being of those who know their place in the world, content with the boundary lines of their life and able to enjoy the fruits of their labors with a cheerful heart. The way to arrive in that place, he says, is to live for we, not me. It's a, it's a life of someone who knows their boundary lines, is not pushing over the boundary lines, seeking to be God. Only God gets everything done that he wants to get done. We are not that way. And this is, this is the person who's able to enjoy their labors with a happy heart. So he says, in essence here, that it's not the person who is working out of envy, which can work hard and see success. It's not the person who's the most skilled and they got those skills to keep up. It's not the person who's lazy, and it's not the person who has two handfuls of toil. I love this comparison, the two handfuls of toil and the hands that are folded, those two images. And we see those two images as real temptations in our culture. I recently read an article that talked about how, it's a Christian article on the Gospel Coalition website, it talked about how that there's an absence of meaning in our world. There always is. That's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about. There's an absence of meaning. And in that gap, people tend to run in our culture in these days uh, in one of two directions, into the comfort culture or the hustle culture, or sometimes the grind, the hustle and grind kind of culture. He says, God's absence must be filled by some presence, and many candidates are vying, vying to fill the void. In particular, we've noticed two maps of meaning that have grabbed the hearts of many, comfort culture and hustle culture. In one sense, they're opposites. In another, they're fraternal twins, different features, same parents. And that's here with the folded hands and the two hands of toil. It's really the same thing. It's, it's about me. He says, by comfort culture, we mean Netflix binging, online gaming, hours of Candy Crush, scrolling Instagram reels, fantasy sports, self-indulgent Amazon sprees, foodie culture addiction, all comfy couch consolations to fill the meaning gap. Essentially, this is consumerism in late modernity as a form of spiritual transcendence. It's not that these activities are bad. Please hear that. It's not that these activities are bad in themselves, but they can become a problem when they create a comfort culture that idolizes rest, idolizes rest 
to the point of finding meaning in slothfulness and consumption. Um, so he says, it's not that those are wrong, but that is one approach. Looking for meaning, trying to, it's the folding of the hands and taking a little rest. The, the hustle ideology, he says, on the other hand, if you doubt the prevalence of hustle and grind ideology in today's world, then consider how many people listen to the Joe Rogan experience. The show has over 13 million subscribers and billions of views, billions. Although Rogan covers an extremely wide range of topics, from martial arts to alternative medicine to alien spacecraft, there's a strong thread that runs through the show about working hard, challenging yourself, never giving up, and grinding until you win. By hustle and grind ideology, we don't simply mean a hardworking lifestyle, but rather it's the ideology, I, oh, I said idolatry, that's true, but it, that's not what it says here. It's the ideology of pursuing a future version of the self, tougher, harder, more successful, more complete, through relentless self-improvement. He quotes a hustle and grind guru in here. I, this is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Well, not really, but it struck me as humorous. He's, he, call, he quotes this hustle and grind guru. He's a former Navy SEAL. And he says, quote, it's so easy to be great nowadays because everyone else is weak. I do, that is, that's the greatest, I don't know how old this guy is, but that, I'm a boomer. That's the greatest boomer proverb I've ever heard. You young people, it's easy to be great because everybody's weak in your generation. Okay, that's hustle and grind ideology, not Bible. That's what it is. Uh, he, he says that binge streaming and binge lifting might seem like opposites, but they're both examples of how good gifts can become idols, he says. Hustle culture idolizes work and gains, with a Z, he says, let the reader understand. But comfort idolatry and work idolatry are both consolation prizes in a world seeking meaning apart from God. Christians must be aware of how these ubiquitous temptations might be gripping their hearts. Well, it's an insightful article, and I think it's accurate in what's drawn us in our culture. But we really didn't need a cultural analysis. We just needed verses 5 and 6. It's right here in the text of Ecclesiastes. Next picture, final picture he gives here of this idea is, uh, and I'm going to be very brief here, is sort of the workaholic. Uh, verse 7, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, no son, no brother. There's no end to all his toil. Verse 8, his eyes are never satisfied, so he never asks, for whom am I toiling? This is the person who has, who work is everything. They don't even have relationships. Uh, they don't have time to go to dinner. And nobody would want to go to dinner, perhaps, because they don't know anybody. They just do their work. That's their, their whole thing is about their accomplishments. And it says they're so busy, they never stop and ask, for whom am I doing this? That is such an important question. And many of us don't do that. We're like hamsters on a wheel. We're just doing the motions. But we never stop and say, why am I doing this? What's the goal of this? Is this necessary? Does God require this? Well, if our answer is we're doing this for the Lord and for the good of neighbor, then in fact we can find peace and joy and we can find satisfaction in what we do. But if we're doing it for other reasons about me, well, what he says here is that it's vanity in verse 8. It's an unhappy business. It's an unhappy business to be isolated in our work. 
meaning that doesn't mean work for home or work, you know, you've got your own business and it's just you, you're a solopreneur or whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about doing it where this is consuming and this is about you and not others. Well, he offers a different way in verses 9 through 12. This is working together. Working together. This is a much better life. This is a life that values relationship, companionship, working together. And his point is simple. Don't go it alone. Don't make it about yourself because two are better than one. And then he goes on to say, actually, three are better than two. Three are better than two. Now, notice the the context of this. Uh, two are better than one because they have a good reward. Uh, you, you guys have heard this verse. But woe to him who's alone. Uh, if two lie together, they keep warm. Uh, the one man prevail against one who is alone. Two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. No, notice the context of this. If you've heard this verse, it was probably at a wedding. And it may have been me that read it at a wedding because I realized this week, and if I did, you're still legally married but that was yanked out of context. That's not about marriage, okay? And so I apologize for poor exegesis at your wedding if I read that at your wedding. It, it applies to a marriage, so it's, it's not false doctrine. It applies to a marriage, but that's not the context here. That's not the context. It's work, isn't it? It's, it's, it's all of life. It includes everybody, just not married people, but everybody. Look at the benefits he gives us in relating with others. He says that it, there's reward in our toil when we work with others. Uh, he says, verse 2, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. You might, mean more, you might make more profit working together, but that's, it probably means more than that. The joy of sharing something with other people, the joy of working with a team, the work, joy of working with a coworker, the joy of experiencing something with a friend. The jo- those kinds of joys are what he's talking about here. There's help in working together. If one falls, then the other people other person will lift him up. Woe, which is a judgment word, woe to him who is alone when he falls and is, has no, not another to lift him up. That's why I know it's not about marriage. And if I read that at your wedding, then all the single people felt immediately condemned. Woe to you. Uh, so that's why it's, but any person, single or married, can experience what he's talking about here. It's companionship. It's partnership. It's friendship. It's fellowship. It's being connected to other people and not being alone. Uh, there is a factor of staying warm. That's an interesting one. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, that sounds like the marriage bed, and it certainly probably would apply there. But I read a number of commentators on this who all said that this has to do with how people traveled with their companions together. And when you traveled, you may have slept out of doors, or you certainly wouldn't have the typical kind of uh, dwelling that you would at home. And so if it was really cold, the way that you stayed warm, whoever you were traveling with, is that you got some body heat while you are sleeping together. And so there are certain times I read Bible verses and I go, man, I'm glad I'm in modern times because I travel with my coworkers a few times a year. And, um, <laughs> and if it's cold, I'm saying, Caleb, turn on the heater. Uh, we ain't got no spooning pastors around here to stay warm <laughs> Apl- applying that verse. But, in a, but if it was absolutely freezing, that's what you did. That's just the culture. That's collect, there's advantages to the individualistic culture, may I say. I, I appreciate collectivism, but not that, okay? I mean, just Ginger on that, my wife, just her on that one. 
So, but, but he means you stay warm, but he probably means more than physically, right? There's a warmth to companionship that you experience. You're not alone. There, there's this sense of, hey, we're in this together, and this is, you know, this is really fulfilling and satisfying. I could have done the same thing on my own, have the same experience on my own, and it wouldn't have meant nearly the same to me as it does experiencing that with one or two or three or four other people. Protection, that's an obvious one. By yourself, somebody could take you. If there's two of you, then you can stand your ground and be protected. And then he said, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The third cord is not Jesus. Um, you know, like the wedding verse, the third cord is not Jesus. This is a metaphor, not about two people in Jesus. It's about human companionship and the strength of human companionship and, and partnership. And so he's saying if two is great, like if you have a cord of a rope, one cord is not very strong. You put two cords together and twist them together, now that's going to hold stronger. You take a third cord and twist it in the rope, um, that's even stronger. So three is better than two is what he is saying. It's even better. Think of the cords of a rope. It's about the metaphors about humans benefiting from community rather than pursuing personal success or personal life alone, like the previous verses that we've read. Well, what does he, he closes this way. He says, look, he's looked at the envious, he's looked at the lazy, the workaholic, and now he sees a king. I'm not going to talk much about the king other than this, verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who had no longer, who no longer knew how to take advice. Same thing. You see, it's the same thing. The young guy is wise, the old guy's a fool. Why is he a fool? Because this king He's experienced, he's seen it all, he's done it all. He doesn't listen to advisors. And the Bible doesn't say, wow, he's a sage. The Bible says he's a fool. Because you never outgrow the need to humble yourself and receive wisdom from God through others in your life. And so this guy is ruling alone. He doesn't take advice. So the overall passage shows us that life in the, under the sun can be barren, We're created by God to flourish in community, but in a fallen world, our relationships can fracture and we prefer to focus on ourselves. We prefer to focus on our own success. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is found later in the story of the Bible. The answer is found when another king comes. There's coming another king, not the foolish king, but there is coming another king. And unlike the foolish king, who listened to nobody but himself, Jesus comes and he is always listening to his father. He says, Jesus says, I only do what I see my father doing. Jesus is listening to his father and obeying at all times. The complete opposite of us and the way we so often live. Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost and to do this to do this, to save us, he took our isolation. He took our aloneness upon himself so that we could be reconciled to the Father and so that we could be reconciled to one another. It required Jesus to be abandoned, Jesus to be isolated so that we could be reconciled. He was rejected by the people of Israel that he came for. He was rejected by his own, or at least forsaken, by his own disciples. They forsook him. And even by his father on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you, why father, have you forsaken me? Matthew 27. And so he experiences this utter isolation 
as he dies on the cross, bearing our sin and bearing life under the sun, which, which can tend towards isolation and a lack of relationship. So, so he is alone all by himself, and, and he does that to take our sins upon himself. He's buried, he's raised on the third day to defeat the power of sin so that we can now experience a new type of community. We are part of a new society. We are part of a new humanity. The Bible calls it a new creation. The people of God reconciled to God and one another so that we can live out life in a different way. Not the person just has no relationships just about their job. Not the person just working from envy, competing with everybody else, never blessing anybody else. No, no, we're called to live a different life in a restored companionship to God and to one another. And so the truth is that no one in this room has to be alone. No one in this room is required or forced to be alone. And none of us should be satisfied living without genuine relationships, without at least growing relationships in our lives, especially with other believers. Now, the gospel doesn't make relationships easy. It doesn't mean just because you're a Christian, relationships come easy. No, they're very difficult. Relationships are hard. The gospel doesn't make them easy. The gospel makes them possible. Because now we have grace in our lives to sort of serve others, to love others, to forgive others. There's a list of beautiful one another's all over the New Testament that describes what our new life is to be like. And it's all made possible by Christ's death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit which lives in us. We can live a new type of way because the Spirit of God lives us. Our lives should look different than they did before we were saved. Our lives should look different than the person that does not have the Spirit of God dwelling in them because we have a new power in our lives now to live life in community with other believers. The gospel empowers us to live out what we read in this passage or what this passage warns against. We can now work motivated by love because the Holy Spirit's in us. We can, we can now uh, love our neighbor rather than envy our neighbor. We can bless our neighbor rather than our hearts curse our neighbor. We can bless them and celebrate them. We can live with contentment. We don't have to have two fulls of act, uh, handfuls of activity. We don't have to, I, it, it, it's a new view. It's not I am what I accomplish. That's not true anymore. I am my work, no. I am a child of God, a son or daughter of God. I am in Christ. That's my new identity. So I do my work, work hard for the glory of God and for the good of others. We now can experience contentment, the one handful of tranquility, which comes from rest and a life filled with relationships. Uh, we, we now can build relationships and work in partnership with others, even though it's difficult. We say, well, I don't have those kinds of relationships. It is hard. Oftentimes, we compare and we look around and say, oh, it looks like they have a lot of relationships. They may not either. They, we all struggle relationally. I don't care if you've been here one year or 10 years. I, I, I feel we all feel this in, 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 in life. Life under the sun includes, I just don't have that many close friends like other people do. Um, so we don't compare ourselves to others. We look to the Lord and say, Lord, who do you want me to invest in? Who can I serve? Who can I love? Who can I reach out to? And lastly, like the king, because of the power of Christ, we can lead being people that are humbly teachable. 
unlike the old foolish king. So here's the application, very simple. How is God calling you to pursue others? Look at this quote from Sean O'Donnell. He says, fellowship is more than sharing a cup of coffee after the service, though I wouldn't disparage that. That's a good thing to do. But it is sharing life together. It's sharing sorrows, fears, and pains so that together we might fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith, and long for the glory of Christ's appearing. I love that. The purpose of fellowship is not so that I feel cozy, that a lot of people love me, okay? That's not what it's about. It's about, that might be a benefit, but it's about sharing sorrows, fears, pains, reconciling conflicts. <laughs> it's tough work. Um, comfort culture all along on the couch is a lot easier pathway. It's just striving after win and emptiness and a waste of a life. But it's easy. It's the easy path. This is the harder path. So that together we might fight the good fight, he says, and finish the race. So think about your life this morning. Who is in your threefold cord? If you're married, besides your spouse. Your spouse is primary. But who else is in your threefold cord? Threefold cord? Who are you partners with? With whom do you discuss spiritual things or can you discuss spiritual things? Which relationship or relationships in your life provide mutual encouragement? To grow in the Lord. Are you invested in a, in a small group? Not are they invested in you. That's a different question. Are you invested in them? That's, that's the pathway of gospel life. How am I investing in others? Does anyone know how to pray for you? Or hold you accountable? If not, the good news is that's all available for all of us in the body of Christ. It may take time. It, it may come with bumps and bruises along the way, metaphorically speaking, of course, but it, it, uh, it's, it's offered to us. Who do you, whom do you include in fellowship? That's a question. For those of us, or those of you who tend to be stronger relationally, it's, it's on you, on us, to seek to incorporate others who might, who might find themselves alienated in life. We're in a new family, have a new joy of welcoming and serving other people. We need not be alone. Jesus was alone, and Jesus was alienated so that we don't have to live that life. There's always a measure of that in life under the sun. There's coming the day when there will be no isolation, loneliness, sorrow um, at all. That's in the new heavens and new earth. But today, we can increasingly grow in companionship and in fellowship and work for the good of others by the grace of God. Let's take a long haul approach with that. It takes time. Let's take a long haul approach and trust that the Lord will spare us, save us, rescue us from what looks successful in the world, but what this passage of God's word says is striving after winning. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.